You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Salvatore Babonis. Well, today I'm joined by Salvatore Babonis, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Salvatore is a sociologist with expertise on globalisation, which is a hot topic today, and particularly China and the US. Pretty hot topics too, especially in terms of their relationships. His book, The New Authoritarianism, Trump, Populism and the Tyranny of Experts, was judged by no less than the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on politics of 2018. And yet here in Australia, it's had lamentably low um, recognition, and you've had lamentably low recognition for writing it. Uh, But this, of course, was after Donald Trump's coming to power and after the historic Brexit vote. Uh, The book makes sense of those great events in many ways. Perhaps surprisingly, though, a key idea of your book has become more relevant and powerful than ever in the context of COVID-19. So thank you for being with us. Can I kick off by quoting from The New Authoritarianism? You say this, The new authoritarianism of the 21st century is, paradoxically, a liberal authoritarianism. It is a tyranny of experts. In basic terms, can you define and describe what you mean by this tyranny of experts? And then perhaps uh, also the other term you use, technocrat. All right. Well, authoritarianism isn't all uh, young men in matching uniforms, goose-stepping and Heil Hitlering. Authoritarianism is any form of government where we're asked or told uh, that we have to take the decisions of other people based on their authority, their positions of authority, and not on our own cognizance, our our own judgment. So while there have been lots of fascist authoritarianisms and communist authoritarianisms, we also have an authoritarianism of the expert class. Uh, We have it right now, of course, with the coronavirus, where we're receiving essentially orders from the public health establishment telling us how we need to live our lives regardless of the damage that might cause. We're not having true democratic debates on things like open borders or lockdowns or wearing of masks. Um, But we've seen that uh, even before the current crisis. I mean, if you look at areas of policy that affect virtually everyone, like central banking. Well, it's now become taken for granted that an independent central bank run by experts without interference from politics is the best way to run an economy. Well, that takes the entire economy out of the realm of democracy. Uh, Similarly with education, how many Australians actually support the Australian curriculum? I suspect if you put it to a vote, very few. But the goal is not to put it to a vote. The goal is to, the goal at least the people who promote it, is to take education out of the realm of politics and put it in the hands of teachers and education professors instead of in the hands of parents and voters. Uh, So in area after area of public life, we've seen decision making being taken out of the realm of democratic politics and put into the realm of expert administration. Now, you might get better policies that way, I can't tell you, but you certainly will get much less democratic policies that way and much less voter say over the things that affect their lives. The American founding fathers, I think, foresaw uh, the real dangers of what might be called uh, authoritarian rule by people who were not elected and wanted a system that was, on the one hand, fully cognizant of our capacity to be 
unwise as a mob, but on the other hand, maximised our personal freedom. Andrew Jackson was an early president, I think, who saw the dangers of that and tried to return power to the people. But uh, well, perhaps ever since then, what, the 1820s, 1830s, there's been this drift towards technocrats well, I, running the show? I'm a big fan of Andrew Jackson, but Andrew Jackson was the Donald Trump of his day. Yeah. <laughs> I remember his... I, I thought you might say his, that. His opponent was uh, John Quincy Adams. Now, John Quincy Adams is not well remembered, but he was the son of a president. Uh, he was a Harvard Law professor, uh, and he was a former Secretary of State. Essentially, he was uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton all rolled into a single candidate. He was the establishment. And that period of uh, before Andrew Jackson, when John Quincy Adams had been president, is called by political scientists the era of good feelings. It's uh, usually lauded as an era when there was bipartisan, so much bipartisan cooperation in American politics that essentially they didn't even have opposition in elections. Uh, now, Andrew Jackson came in and changed all that. <laughs> he said, I'm not with this era of good feelings. I want competition. And in 1828 and 1832, you know, he shattered the political system by offering people a choice. And ultimately, I think that's what democracy is about. It, it's not about me getting my way or you getting your way. It's about the people being able to choose between competing options. Uh, you know, I, I don't support uh, Donald Trump because I agree with Donald Trump's policies. I support the Donald Trump phenomenon because it gave American voters a choice, a clear choice between two enormously different visions of what America should be. Uh, the, you know, four years ago, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were diametrically opposed. Everyone knew who they wanted to vote for. Now, each side may disagree with the other. I may disagree with some of Donald Trump's policies, agree with others, but I could very well make a decision. I was given a clear choice, and that's what democracy needs, is clear choices. Um, just on that, though, I think I'd have to say that what worries me is that the American electorate now appears so polarised and so suspicious uh, and distrustful and even loathing of one another at the extremes, sure. including in very educated circles, that you wonder whether they can find common ground on the things that they ought to be uniting around again. Well, the question is, is common ground necessarily a good thing? Uh, common ground is great if, if you're running a a church or a civic organization or a club. Uh, in politics, common ground should be the, the last thing we want. Uh, I mean, it always sounds good. We want our politicians to collaborate and work together for a better country. But in fact, what democracy means is politicians offering us choices, offering us competition. If they offer us the same thing on both sides, then there's nothing to choose from. Now, I know a lot of people get very worked up over political polarization and you know, feel like it diminishes the quality of life because people are always so angry at other people. Well, I think that's the price you pay to live in a robust democracy instead of a kind of managed quasi-democracy where you know, questions are off the table. I want people to be politically incorrect and being politically incorrect means ruffling feathers. Very interesting way of, of looking at it. Let me ask a question related to that. How well informed, how well educated about democracy and public policy do you think the electorate in America in today, today is? Oh, no electorate is very well informed. And that's why, ironically, we need clear choices. I mean, yeah. look, if everyone were reading three daily newspapers 
uh, studying for a PhD, uh, keeping tabs mm. on all the technical details of every policy debate, mm. then maybe you could have direct democracy. Yeah. But what we have is representative democracy, and representative democracy works best when people, when politicians offer clearly, clearly contrasting policy sets to the electorate, so that even people who you know, may not be as well informed, who may not watch the news, still are able to make an informed choice. I, I mean, even if you haven't gone to a university, even if you had average grades in high school, even if you dropped out of high school, you still darn well know whether you want a uh, Joe Biden or a Donald Trump <laughs> as president. And mm -hmm. that's the point. Democracy has to work for people who dropped out of high school. It has to work for people who you know, just got by educationally and don't read very much. I mean, sure, intellectuals may say, oh, I, I want every voter to be well-informed on the issues, but do we really want a democracy where only people with PhDs are allowed to vote? No, we don't. Uh, well, some of my colleagues in political science do. There are yeah. serious proposals for education-weighted voting or test-weighted voting where you have to show your uh, expertise in an area before you're allowed to vote yeah. in that area. And, and with it, some alignment with what they think matters. Uh, well, look, with alignment with the sort of people they are, right? It's yeah. people like me saying only professors should be allowed to vote. Uh, to me, that's anathema for democracy. Democracy is all about ordinary people, the wisdom of crowds, of people being able to express their views even if they're wrong, even if I, as an expert, think those views are crazy. Uh, they still have a right in a democracy to have their own point of view. So if I hear you correctly, I'm, I'm just testing here to see if I'm, sure. I'm getting a handle on what you're saying. If you've got, say in America, um, two presidential candidates who are offering very different alternatives, one of the great advantages of that is that you won't get an outsourcing of decision-making to the technocrats. Well, it's much you... harder for them to sort of move everybody into their comfortable alignment and take society economically, socially, and so forth, where they think it ought to go? Well, what you will have is clear choices. You'll also have rotation power. Now, the US, I mean, 150 years ago, the United States had a spoils system where virtually all federal jobs, right down to the you know clerk in a post office, were political appointees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And OK, that's not what we want. That's an extreme form of partisanship. But we do want uh, all of the you know, not only the Secretary of State, but the Assistant Secretaries of State and the Deputy Assistant Secretaries of State. And we want all of those people to turn over when there's election because we want the new administration to reflect the views of the people who voted for them. Now, technocracy uh, tends to impede that. When there is an election in the United States, uh, well, the Federal Reserve Board doesn't change over. The governance at the Centers for Disease Control doesn't change over. There's a top leadership in these positions stay in place. Now, from a technocratic standpoint, that may be seen as very desirable. We don't want to politicize the Fed. Well, if we're not politicizing the Fed, why are we having elections at all, right? I mean, if I can't vote to affect interest rate policy mm -hmm. and unemployment policy, what can I vote yeah. for? Yeah. If there's one thing I would say as a you know, former political leader, um, it's, it's this. Uh, you do, the, the community should want and expect the people that they elect to lead and not, if you like, subcontract out their responsibilities. 
Oh, absolutely. We want politicians being politicians. And I've written about this specifically with the coronavirus crisis in Australia. In Australia, the National Security Council of Cabinet was clearly pushing for travel restrictions back in February and March. Uh, the Australian Health Promotion Principal Committee rejected that. They followed the World <laughs> Health Organization advice, which was that travel restrictions don't work. They're not public health measures. Now, finally, the National Security Commission overrode its own Australian Health Prin uh, Promotion Principal Committee. But Brendan Murphy, the chief medical officer at the time, back in March, the day before Australia imposed its global travel ban, actually wrote that it would be equally valid to simply open all borders uh, as to close them. And clearly, the medical establishment was pushing for uh, open borders policy. Now, finally, the politicians stepped in and said, no, that's crazy. You know, people want to close the borders. We need to close down travel. Had politicians done that just two weeks earlier, we wouldn't have had any coronavirus crisis in Australia. We, the whole economy could have kept running if they had politicized the crisis instead of leaving it up to the experts. I think there are a lot of people starting to agree that we expect our politicians to take decisions by all means, listen to the experts, but then make the value calls that they're there for and that then the electorate can pass judgment on exactly. at election time. This yeah. idea that politicians are not accountable is one of the weirdest things I hear of all times. Well, because of course they are. Their jobs are on the line in this country every three years maximum. Unfortunately, many politicians don't want to be accountable. And so they will that say... That may be true, but they are. <laughs> so so we'll, they will say things like, I will be guided at all times by expert judgment, as Scott Morrison said with regard to the coronavirus crisis. Well, you know, informed by expert judgment is one thing. Of course you want to listen to experts. You listen to experts on all sides of the debate. Uh, but guided... No, you should be guided by the electorate. I mean, ultimately, the boss, your boss as a politician, is not the scientific establishment. It's the electorate. Salvatore, you make a fascinating argument in your latest book about the relationship between our rights culture, which, by the way, out on the ground, people get is dangerous. You know, you'll hear people saying, we only ever hear you talk about rights. What about our responsibilities? They do say that out there in Baderland. Nonetheless, as you say, uh, it's, a, it's a big thing in the West, and the rise of authoritarianism. Right. So you'd think talking about rights means that you're, uh, you know, you're holding authoritarianism at bay, but I think your insights are valuable. Can you explain why it is that the rights culture sits uneasily with democracy well, uh, everyone... and has led to the tyranny of experts that you talk about? Well, look, many people will be aware that there's been a shift in the meaning of the word liberal that liberal historically, we now call it classical liberalism, used to be a philosophy of freedoms. And now liberalism has become a philosophy of rights. Now, yeah. now that's been a transition. There's a big difference between to these two kinds of liberties, between freedoms and rights. Freedom means I can do what I want. Right? I'm free to do it. A right means that someone else has an obligation yeah. to perform to, to satisfy my right. So to make that clear, you know, if, I have a, uh, if I have freedom of speech, I can say what I want. If I have a right to be heard, well, then the ABC has to make space for me in its programming. Right? It pr puts an obligation on someone else to perform my right. I can have a freedom to work, uh, but I have a right to welfare payments. It means that someone else has to pay taxes so that I can receive my welfare payment. Well, that has been a dangerous transition. Freedoms impose no obligations on anybody. Uh, they're harmless in some sense. You know, letting people do what they want, while it may be bad for them, uh, 
it's not bad for other people. It doesn't hurt other people. Rights are always putting obligations on other people to respect, enforce, yeah. make possible your rights. And that's where it creates an opening for a new form of liberal authoritarianism. Because someone has to define those rights. Yes. Right? Someone has to say, what are the limits of those yeah. rights? Who has yeah. to pay? Because you know, they're competing. Because they are competing. I mean, if I have a right to a position at a university because of you know, my status as indigenous and someone else has a right to a position at a university on account of performing well in an ATAR, well, some court has to adjudicate who gets that position, which right is stronger. Uh, and when we get to the adjudication of rights, we're always talking experts. We're talking degreed professionals uh, who are accredited in a certain area, whether that's a you know, lawyer, a judge, a legal expert, or an academic like myself, or a medical doctor who's making a decision about who will get medical care. We all have rights to medical care in Australia. Well, someone has to decide whose right to medical care is stronger because you know, medical care has to be rationed. Uh, ultimately, when we talk about rights, we talk about the authority of experts. And that's why I think the expert class, mm -hmm. those who have uh, you know, higher degrees, tend to be so supportive of the idea of rights because it puts them in a position to adjudicate these claims. I, I, mean, I think the most place this has become clearest is in refugee rights. There, there's a really strong push among the expert class for rights for refugees. Now, of course, you know, we all have freedoms once we're in a country, but the right to live in a country is something that's difficult to get. You have to apply for, you have to request it. Uh, refugees only have rights when experts say they do. Uh, they go to court, they get an opinion, uh, they have someone pushing for them. Refugee rights are the place where we see the most extreme example of a tyranny of the expert class who insist that rights be enforced uh, against a population that may or may not want to grant that entry into the country. That's a very interesting point, isn't it? Because you get this sort of superiority then. We know better. What would the electorate know? They call it wrong. And then you get a breakdown in respect for democracy itself Well, from the technocrats themselves. Well, I use refugees as an example, not because I'm against refugees. In fact, I'm an advocate of greater uh, refugee, uh, greater numbers of refugee uh, positions being granted by Australia and by other countries. I think most of our developed countries grant far too few places for refugees. Australia does very well, though. Well, I, we can debate that. Compared to many other countries. Australia does well, but we can debate if it's doing well enough. Okay. Uh, but for me, that should be something that is legislated. Once you have a court deciding that because Australia has signed a treaty, it must accept refugees. Well, that takes the refugee debate out of the realm of politics where you and I can yes. argue over it. Yeah. We can have opinions debated in the mm. press and ultimately let the voters decide. Instead, it takes it out of that realm and puts it in the realm of expert decision-making where only a human rights lawyer can mm. decide whether or not a refugee claim uh, is appropriate. Actually, in those remarks, you're revealing something else that I think is very important. It can involve a loss of sovereignty. sovereignty no, sovereignty because those technocrats can be plugged in internationally. So right. they're seeking to bring into our culture uh, a set of rules and uh, you know, um, rights uh, that are not even indigenous, let alone decided by our own people. Well, we have seen a and shift therefore in the parliament sovereignty. should be very wary and very open and very honest with in, the electorate about what 
international treaties it's lining up to sign. In, in the Anglo-Saxon countries, we've historically believed that sovereignty resided in Parliament and the people. The answer in, in England has been Parliament. The answer in the United States has been the people. Increasingly, though, we see that sovereignty resides in the Supreme Courts or in Australia, the high courts. Uh, now, that, I think, is a real problem. It's been an evolution over the last 200 years. But now, even in the United Kingdom, uh, Parliament, yes. uh, we saw with the Brexit debate, yes. uh, gave way yeah. to the decision of the High Court. Mm. Well, you know, go back 20 years and that would have been inconceivable. Mm. You know, even in England, mm. the Parliament, the mother of all parliaments, has subjected itself to an you know, ultimately appointed via very distant democratic means, high court, uh, but nonetheless a, a Supreme Court in the UK, but nonetheless one that is not directly elected by the people. Now, yeah. if you're going to have the sovereignty of courts, you have to have elections for judges. <laughs> I myself, well, no, no, that's a really uh, important point. Yeah, and because I myself... What you're saying is, yes, there may be a vaguely at arm's length process of democracy in electing them, i.e. an elected government might choose the judges, but there's no right or capacity for the people. Well, to in then the UK, remove those judges. In the UK, an elected government appoints a panel, yes. which appoints the judges. So very remote. It's very remote. Yeah. Essentially, the expert class itself yeah. de determines yeah. who sits on the court. So it's of a cabinet in Australia, essentially. Right. Strongly influenced by the prime minister. Right. But in America, it's the president, which is one of the things we're often missed in Australia, as to why. There's such an argument about who should be president based around one particular question, right. uh, that of well, how will they appoint? In the United and States, who will they appoint to the Supreme Court? In the United States, many people are dismayed by the politicization of Supreme Court appointments. I'm thrilled by the politicization of Supreme Court appointments. We, we should all be debating this, pretending, as we used to, that Supreme Court appointments were non-political. Uh, uh, Congress mm. used to, or the Senate used to have a gentlemen's agreement that they would not ask Supreme Court justices, future Supreme Court justices, about their opinions because that would be inappropriate. Of course, these are simply dispassionate experts. Well, we've now seen that with the Kavanaugh uh, mm. controversy in the United States. We've seen it all go out the window. We now all accept that appointing Supreme Court justices is a highly political uh, decision, and, and that's what it should be. Uh, people should get the Supreme Court they want. Uh, I don't know how well Australia performs on that, if Australia's Supreme Court is what the people want, but in the United States, we're seeing now, uh, for the first time in 150 years, uh, the Supreme Court being explicitly politicized, and frankly, I'm all in favor of that. Uh, I don't mean to be in any way disrespectful of voters. That, that would be the counter to everything I think you and I believe in, but I suspect that not many Australians would even be aware of how uh, the High Court judges, for example, are appointed. Well, in, in America, we're but certainly aware very now. Aware. <laughs> and it's a major and, political issue. Well, and uh, candidates campaign yeah. explicitly on mm. the kinds of Supreme Court justices yes, they would appoint. They do. Yeah. And one of the main things that's got Democrats worked up in America is the idea of a second Trump term, right. seeing an at, even further at least loading. one and maybe more new yep. Supreme Court uh, appointments. And it's in, you know it's something that's not really sort of focused on much in this country. Um, can I come back to Australia then? Do you think um, we have, or would you describe our, our technocratic class as particularly strong and starting to corrode our democracy? Uh, I think Australia is the most European 
of the English-speaking countries, and I don't say that as a compliment. <laughs> I think Australia is has more of a European-style approach to governance, which is, in many ways, you know, very rational, very clean. It's uh, taking the politics out of things and letting expert administrators run things. Uh, even within the parties themselves, uh, the major parties don't have party primaries. So, so the party selects their candidates, the people don't select their candidates. The Australian Senate is even more insulated from popular opinion uh, because the voting, the way voting is done for the Senate virtually assures that each party will get its places yeah. in, in the Senate. You almost Which was not the way it was intended to operate, by the way. Well, but you almost can't see a clean sweep in the Senate of, of one party or another. It would have to be a cataclysm uh, for that to happen. And so Australia has these built-in buffers to promote consensus. Now, to see where that goes wrong, just look at Germany. I mean, in Germany for the past 18 years, no matter how who you vote for, you vote for Angela Merkel. Because Germany has consensus government where all the parties come together and... Uh, support the same prime minister, the same executive team. There's some twinkering at the, tinkering at the edges when, uh, you know, when the Social Democrats win more votes, they get a few more seats in cabinet. But it works kind of like what the national cabinet, uh, ha how that's been working here in Australia. Now, some people think that promotes better government. And honestly, it, maybe it does. But it doesn't produce more democratic government. And I always want to remind people that the proper way to frame a choice about democracy is not, do I want to live in a good democracy or a bad dictatorship? Of course, we all want to live in good democracies with good policy. The real choice is, do I want to live in a good dictatorship or a bad democracy? You know, would I prefer a democracy that gives me terrible policies or a dictatorship of the experts that is fantastically well-governed. Well, that's a much harder choice. I, I'm a Democrat, right? I'll take democracy with all its flaws over even a platonic philosopher king. But as Plato and his followers suggest, many philosophers and political philosophers still yearn for that philosopher king. And I think Australia is further down that road, certainly, than the US or UK. Fascinating. Can I ask you, you get a lot of opportunity to interact with young Australians. Yeah. How receptive they, I mean, you are challenging a lot of the, I'll say it, fairly lazy thinking that we Australians are guilty of about our system because we've been so comfortable for so long. It's worked so well for so long. The cracks are starting to emerge in big ways. The Australian people we know from the research are now very concerned about our future, uh, economically, uh, militarily, and in the immediate sense, uh, health-wise. Um, so they're, they're not exactly relaxed and laid back and uh, in a, at the moment. Mm -hmm. You're really challenging people to think through their understanding of democracy. How receptive are they? Well, I teach a social problems class at the University yep. of Sydney, where I try to encourage students to consider all the options on the table, not just the consensus mm. options. That is, I'm not telling them, for example, we, we study uh, the, the anti-vaxxer movement, people yeah. who are against vaccines. Uh, and instead of presenting it as, this is an evil movement of terrible people, I present it as, you know, these are parents who care deeply about their children and their children's health and who you know, want to make sure that their children uh, are safe. Well, you know, should we force uh, vaccines on parents when parents have serious concerns for their children, even if the parents are wrong? And when it's framed that way, a lot more of the students are sympathetic to social movements like the anti-vaccine movement. Now, you know, I disagree with the anti-vaccine movement but I don't try to portray 
people who oppose vaccines as somehow uh, destroying civilization. You know, I think in a democracy, we have to accept that most of us, and certainly almost everyone who gets active in politics, is doing it because they deeply care about something. And that should be respected. Now, when I present it that way, I get much more equal arguments in my classes than you would expect from a University of Sydney arts undergraduate population. Because if you present alternative viewpoints as being you know, legitimately held, as, as being uh, authentically held by people, well, then we start to have respect for other people's points of view. Now, I'm not trying to convince my students. I can't tell you which direction they're going to go. Uh, but I think they are open to the debate if anyone puts it in front of them. Now, of course, if you teach in an authoritarian way, here's the truth, I want you to learn it. Students will just soak it up and give you the answers back on the exam. But I think students are pretty wise to that and, and skeptical oh, yeah. about it. If I had a dollar, I mean, I move around the country a lot, have for many, many years. If I had a dollar for every time a young person said to me, you know, I have a whole lot of stuff forced down my throat at university and I write my papers right. to get through. I don't write what I really think. Right. Oh, isn't there, I mean, there's a real question mark, I think, about how we really serve our young people to make our society work. Not only Equip just, them to make our society, and, and I'm saying democracy yeah. and our system of government, which I think is second to none. I mean, I, I think our forefathers were so wise in the way they set this place up, but we're not using it wisely. Mm -hmm. And it's been very comfortable, but we've also force-fed our kids to accept right. things that they, they see through, so, but have not been equipped to sort of tackle. Not only do I get the same comments from students, I even get comments from students or questions from students asking me what I want them to write. <laughs> because they're so used to the idea that they're supposed to write a model essay to please the teacher. They just take that for granted. Yeah. And, and that, of course, is uh, horrific. <laughs> Someone like horrific. me who's a liberal educator. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, but I'm I absolutely there, with you there. There are very few liberal educators at universities anywhere. This mm. is not just an Australian problem. Uh, mm. The good news is that students are wise to it. Students are mm. a lot more skeptical than we give them credit for. When we talk about you know, snowflake students who are trying to shut down debates at universities, this is a tiny minority of students. And frankly, I think other students roll their eyes <laughs> at yeah. the snowflake uh, complaints. But one of the great problems, of course, is that they've, uh, you know, uh, they're so overrepresented, those views, in, in mainstream media. Well, I wrote an article for Times Higher Education. When they asked me to write about the snowflake epidemic on campus, I, I wrote the article and I said, we have a snowflake, epidem snowflake epidemic among administrators. <laughs> it's the administrators who are afraid of genuine debate. The students are fine with it, uh, but the administrators are scared of it. And you know, they, they don't want to hear uh, opposing views. Well, Jonathan Haidt does make the point uh, that um you do get a certain amount of groupthink amongst students, and he's observed a situation where somebody in a, in a student body has expressed a different view. Everybody's piled on, and as he's listened to the debate, he's realised that the people who have piled on are doing so because they've con been conditioned to. They don't actually understand their own position. Well, I, I have a lot of respect for Jonathan Haidt. I've joined the Heterodox Academy, which he uh, co-founded. Uh, I think they're doing great work. But I also think that the alarmism of Jonathan Haidt and the Heterodox Academy is, is a little bit over the top and a little bit self-serving because I do think that there is a, you know, a sensible silent majority of students who don't pile in like that, who aren't 
overly sensitive, who are not a bunch of, you know, mob uh, Jacobins wanting to shut down a debate at universities. I think if you took a, if you did a, uh, a secret ballot survey of students at universities, you would get very different political views than if you ask them to state in front of the the Maoist uh, you know panel, uh, you yeah. put them to to express their views. Of course, they express what they know they have to express when they do it publicly because they don't want to be shouted down, and shouted down by their professors yeah. as much as shouted down by other students. Um, but I don't think that's the majority view among students, at least not the ones I've talked to. Excellent, excellent. Well, you might be getting the cream of the students. I don't know. Actually, I suspect it's the other way around. I suspect that the University of Sydney, we have the highest concentration of intolerant students. And probably if you were to look at you know, Australian Catholic University or Macquarie or Charles Sturt, you'd probably find a lot more tolerance at those places. That's a very interesting thing to say. Why? Because we are self-selecting. Students come to the University of Sydney because among all Australian universities, it has the strongest reputation for being a... Uh, you know, a hive of anti, well, establishment, anti-establishment <laughs> viewpoints, because these anti-establishment viewpoints are now the establishment. Uh, but it that's, is a, it, that's an interesting comment yeah, in itself. It, it is a place that attracts students who have those views. And, and look, I, I love that. I mean, I mean, I really appreciate having students who strong, want, you know, have robust viewpoints and want to express them. I think that's great. Uh, but I'm also very careful to create lack of a better word, a safe space for students who don't share those viewpoints. Good. I mean, for example, when, when back when Australia was debating the uh, same-sex marriage, uh, the same-sex marriage poll, and ultimately the, the change in law, uh, I had debates in my classes about it. We did a Twitter debate, and I insisted that we have both sides represented. That is, I didn't teach my students that. Uh, same-sex marriage must be accepted. Instead, I um, problematized it. I pointed out to them why some people might not want same-sex marriage. I pointed out to them how same-sex marriage is, in many ways, the rationale for it, love is love, would also apply to polygamous marriages. And I pointed out that, you know, in many societies have polygamous marriages. Who am I to question whether, you know, a man truly loves all three of his wives and whether all three of his wives truly love that man? Uh, if love is love, love is love, right? So, so we try to problematize this and create a safe space for students who don't have that, you know, the same viewpoint as the most vocal activists. And we were able to have a reasoned debate about this. Now, of course, if I went into classes, I think most academics do, and simply taught my own viewpoint. I mean, I'm personally a supporter of same-sex marriage. But if I taught to that viewpoint, well, I wouldn't have any debate. Well, we know there are a lot of academics who did tell their students or Absolutely. thought to tell their students what they should do. Oh, the, the whole university swung behind it. We, we fly not only the rainbow flag on top of the uh, citadel, you know, at the quadrangle at the University of Sydney, uh, we fly the all-color, uh, all-gender flag. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we as an institution officially endorse viewpoints on issues like same-sex marriage, which then marginalizes that large number of students, you know, one-third, 40%, who have opposing viewpoints. Now, it should never be forgotten in New South Wales, which is the biggest state in Australia, that despite the massive campaign in favour of 47% of people in New South Wales did not support same-sex marriage. Well, That's well, often exactly. forgotten and, of those who voted. And mm. I 
don't think in a democracy we should be very careful about delegitimizing anyone's point of view. I mean, to me, a view has to be very extreme. I mean, advocating genocide, uh, the Christchurch shooter. Okay, these people are are beyond the pale. But it has to be a tiny, tiny lunatic fringe who are beyond the pale if you're going to run a, a successful democracy. You have to respect people whose opinions you disagree with. Because in summation, what you're saying is that we ought to be very open to wildly and passionately and heatedly debating of major issues, but we should continue to respect one another as fellow human beings while we do it. That's the thing that's always attributed to Voltaire, though it wasn't him who said it. may disagree with you, but (laughs) defend to the death, you're right to say it. Now the motto seems to be on the part of some that if you dare to disagree with me, I'll fight to the death to have you silenced or (laughs) cancelled. We're Uh, learning how to burn people at the stake again. (laughs) Well, I think there's a good comparison with uh, the witch trials because it is a a form of a new iconoclasm. I I mean, let's let's remember that our English-speaking societies have been through this before in in the Reformation, Puritanism. Uh, If you go to uh, Catholic-majority countries like uh, Italy and Spain, you see much less pulling statues off pedestals than in our you know, Protestant uh, societies. Now, that doesn't mean I support one religion <laughs> over the other, but it is something characteristic of our society that we go through these bouts of Puritanism and in a way that's good. I mean, Puritanism is a you know, kind of noble approach to the world. Look, I applaud the sentiment of people who hate racism so much that they want to punish people who died 150 years ago for their historical racism. Well, that's a sentiment to be admired in a way, uh, but I still don't want to pull down the statue. <laughs> I, I, wow. I admire that they're so passionate about it. Uh, yeah, but... What, well, I'll tell you what I don't you know, Let's be sensible. What I don't admire, though, is that many of them do it on, as you said, sentiment, rather than the real understanding of what was happening and a proper contextualizing of it, so that you get this idea that uh, uh, racism essentially is a white thing. Well, I don't like that they do it by mob rule. I I don't like Mm. mob rule or lynchings, no matter who's being... sentiment versus argument and calm Who's being lynched. Well, if the city of Bristol had uh, held a referendum and voted Mm. to tear down the statues of its city fathers, um, well, fine. I mean, I I would vote no, Mm. uh, but I could respect the result. But Uh, you'd feel then that there would have been... They'd been a respect for the views of the majority. Absolutely. And there'd been a debate. Absolutely. And that's what we want. If, we, you know, if we're going yeah. to have democracy, democracy fundamentally means the majority rule. You, you can't get around that. You can't call it some kind of half democracy called majoritarian democracy. Uh, democracy is majoritarian democracy. And if you can't have majority rule, then you have to admit you prefer authoritarianism. Now, you may prefer an authoritarian government that only listens to you, <laughs> but it's still an authoritarianism if you're not willing to subject your viewpoint to the ultimate uh, rule of the voters. Back to Andrew Jackson and the comment, the interesting comment you made about Trump. Now, in many ways, those who voted for Trump, whether they were consciously thinking of it in these terms or not, were voting against the, the Beltway view of the world, the sure. technocrats view of the world, the way in which everybody seemed to merge and there was no difference. Do you think uh, uh, Donald Trump has actually uh, achieved something in breaking the power uh, of of the technocrats, perhaps. Oh, he's achieved an enormous amount. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's 
we have to remember that in 2017, in the first year of the, of the Trump administration, there was a concerted effort among America's, I mean, to call it the deep state, you know, sounds like a conspiracy theory of some kind, but there was a concerted effort among the deep state, that is among the uh, permanent staff of organizations like the FBI, like the National mm. Security uh, Administration, uh, to have Trump ejected. Uh, that is, the, the Washington establishment tried to get him one way or another uh, kicked out of office. And I think that's a travesty. Now, I'm proud that it didn't succeed. I, I, you know, I believe in the robustness of American institutions, and I don't think it ever was going to succeed. Uh, but there certainly was a, a lot of effort among the Washington establishment simply to quash or control. I mean, among Democrats to quash, among Republicans to seize control of the Trump presidency. And as a new leader without any political experience, I think Trump was very vulnerable in his first year to uh, especially to the Republican establishment, telling him what to do. Now, we've seen the flourishing, I think, of Donald Trump as a president, for good and for bad. I mean, some of his policies have been great, some have been bad, terrible. Um, but we now see a president in control of his administration. Uh, and that's what's going into the re-election. I mean, people who are now voting in 2020 are voting not for, you know, maybe a return of the Republican establishment. I mean, they're voting for a Trump administration. And if, if they vote for it, they know what they're getting. One, uh, one key institutional sphere in any well-functioning liberal democracy is what um, the 19th century French sociologist uh, de Tocqueville would have identified as civil society. You've um, commented recently in the context of COVID that a key weakness of China right. is a lack of a civil society. What do you mean by civil society and why should we seek to reinvigorate it in our Western democracies? Civil society is the panoply of organizations and individuals who are engaged in creating society outside of the government and outside of the family. Essentially everything between family and the government. We usually leave uh, for-profit activities out of civil society. Instead, we think of things like you know, uh, journalism, uh, churches, clubs, uh, podcasters. So, you know, all of us who are out there you know, competing in the in the open market for ideas. Now, it, families. It, well, families. well, families are, are we think of as kind of like the individual. Uh, families are. We don't think of families as having political viewpoints, right? right. I, I mean, you know, family is an important institution, but it's not what we think of when we think of civil society. Civil society are those institutions that connect families together. So, a church, mm. absolutely, a civil society organization. Well, they're very weak now. Uh, well, there may be weak in Australia, not in the United States. <laughs> so we see very strong uh, attachment to churches and other uh, religious institutions, churches, temples, mosques uh, in the United States. And I think the Anglo-Saxon countries have much stronger attachment to civil society organizations than, say, continental European countries, to say nothing of China, where these organizations are prohibited. Now, in China, uh, civil society has been completely quashed by the Communist Party. Uh, there are some house churches that are underground, but you know, ordinary churches in China actually have 
Communist Party officials who uh, participate in the management of the churches. I mean, there, there, in, there are no independent unions in China. All unions are effectively a branch of the Communist Party. Um, but that's China. We all know that China is a, an extreme totalitarian society. I prefer to compare what we do with continental Europe, where in Europe there's a lot of official support for what they think is civil society. Yeah. But that has, in fact, corrupted European civil society. Since if you want to run a, you know, a union or a, a night school or a, even a church in Europe, you're relying on government funding. Well, how independent can you be when the government's writing a check for your very existence? And I think civil society in Europe, while numerically it appears impressive, oh, look how many think tanks there are in Europe. When you then realize that most of those think tanks actually are mostly supported by the government, then it becomes less impressive. So he, <laughs> he who pays the piper calls the tune. Well, ultimately, uh, um, ultimately, yes. Right. Now, uh, in Australia, there's a lot more independence. In the U.S., of course, there's a, there's an extreme uh, independence of civil society. I mean, no one tells uh, American organizations what to do. In Australia, I think there is well. Take, for example, the ABC, you know, the dominant position of the ABC as a broadcaster. Um, although it's supposedly an independent broadcaster, the ABC is clearly captured by its own staff in that the political views of the ABC as an organization reflect the preferences of its staff. Um, the staff might say that, well, that's as it should be. But of course, the staff would say, <laughs> would say that. Uh, Australia has a lack of independent media because of the government's own competition. Now, in European countries, it's even more extreme. Look at the Deutsche Welle in Germany and its dominant position there. Uh, but you know, in the United States, where even what we call public television and public radio are actually member-supported organizations, they're not they're public radio. They're not government <laughs> radio. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, in the United States, we have a much more robust media landscape. Uh, now, some people say that's terrible. We used to have consensus media where everyone was on board with the government's message. Uh, I'd rather see uh, you know, highly contentious media where people are fighting where, yeah, if I tune to Fox News, uh, I know they're going to support Donald Trump. And if I tune to CNN, I know they're going to support Joe Biden. If I want to hear both sides, I watch both channels. So are you painting a picture of an America that still has a strong civil uh, society, if you like, uh, the, perhaps Edmund Burke would have called them, the, the little platoons are still marching pretty strongly, and that therefore talk of American declinism may be overestimated? <laughs> I am absolutely not an American declinist. I, I've been hearing about American decline ever since I was born. Uh, you know, In the 1970s, America was supposedly declining, going to be buried by the Soviet Union. <laughs> we saw how that turned out. Uh, no, I, I think the, the magic of the American system is that it is so contentious. And the more contentious it is, the better. Uh, it's kind of like a you know, Darwinian struggle for life. Uh, you, know, the most, you get the strongest uh, organisms where there's the most competition. Now that all competition means lots of violent conflict. It means lots of death and regeneration. It's a difficult life, uh, but it does produce a healthier, more uh, sustainable, System. I mean, it's kind of like fighting uh, fighting bushfire. It's the same kind of principle. I if you have bush that's been subjected to lots of stress, you know, 
given regular droughts, given regular exposure to fire, you get a healthy bush that then if, when the big one comes, it can withstand it. If instead you protect and cultivate the bush and you don't allow uh, you know, any fire, you don't allow any logging, you don't allow any gathering of wood, you, know, you, you protect it, then when the fire comes, it, it all burns up in a minute. And, and I think the same analogy is what protects the United States from becoming a society like you know, France or Germany, which is, I think, much more susceptible to a sudden collapse. How then would you respond then to, you mentioned the ABC, an ABC view of the world, which I think it would be fair to say, would say, well, um, no, that's, you know, you're just not right. Look at all those people who don't have health care. Look at those people who drop off the end of the social security right. network. Look at those people in America that, uh, in the context of BLM, uh, Black Lives yeah. Matter, uh, you know, are disadvantaged on the basis of the colour of their skin. Sure. It's not a society that is a great place to live. Let me turn this around. I would even say, look at those people who lose their jobs because a hostile mob wants them to be unemployed. Well, I feel bad for the individual. Uh, I feel bad for that person who's, who's homeless. I feel bad for that person who doesn't have health care. Uh, but the question on the table isn't what is more sympathetic for people who lose out. The question is what makes a stronger, more robust society? Now, that harshness does lead to damage at the edges. And, and I don't want to be one of those damaged people. I don't want to be an academic who loses my job because a mob you know, bays for my blood. Uh, but I think the system that allows me to lose my job is actually a stronger system than a system that said, no, 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 you can't fire Salvatore for any reason. Now, personally, I want a law that says, I, I want a bill of attainder that says you can't fire Salvatore for any reason, no matter what he says. Uh, but the system is stronger precisely because uh, people can self-organize. Even uh, people can self-organize in ways that I disagree with. Um, but that, that level of self-organization, that level of political politicization, that level of hostility in the political sphere makes for a very strong system that when it is exposed to external threats um, is virtually unbeatable. As an Australian, you know, I'm very conscious that our country has always had great and powerful friends to call on sure. in times of difficulties, and we face times of difficulties. There's a lot of suggestion now that perhaps those days are coming to an end, although the Australian-American alliance is strong. And people overlook the fact that essentially we are both democracies and English-speaking right. democracies at that. They, they tend to focus on the differences rather than the things we have in common. Uh, but how do you see America over the next one, two decades in terms of its willingness to play global policeman? Sure to lead globally? Or do you think you'll see an increased sort of tendency to pull back and say, no, let's, let's go back to our days when we were inclined towards American exceptionalism uh, and isolationism? Well, I, I'm on the margins here because my own motto is, you know, God helps those who help themselves and so should the United States of America. <laughs> what I would like to see is an America that, uh, as an American, I, I'd like to see an America that focuses its energies on supporting those who fight the good fight for themselves. So, you know, supporting a South Korea that resists infiltration from the North while, frankly, dropping a Philippines that uh, is ready to make deals with China and then cower behind the U.S. security shield if they go wrong. Uh, so I would like to see the U.S. be more selective 
in its support and, and mostly focus that support on countries that are pulling their own weight. Now, for Australia, what that means is that if Australia wants a, a, a strong American alliance and American support in the future, Australia should be doing exactly what it's done for the last 30 years, which is supporting uh, a global system that is, well, that is one that we all want to live in. I mean, let's not forget, when there were problems in the Persian Gulf last year, Australia sent a frigate. Uh, when there have been problems in uh, East Timor, Australia sent troops, uh, right? Australia, when, of course, in Vietnam, Australia you know, contributed. In Korea, Australia made a massive contribution. And I think that's the proper role for Australia. As long as Australia is always willing to support, to fight the good fight with the United States, I think it will find a United States that's ready to fight with it, whether that means in literal terms, you know, militarily, or when it comes to trade and investment issues, when it comes to you know, China putting journalists in arbitrary detention, uh, you know, if Australia takes a stand, the United States will stand with it. Of course, if countries refuse to take a stand, you know, I think historically, you know, a couple decades ago, we saw New Zealand trying to uh, set itself up as some kind of you know, non-aligned country. Well, then, of course, it's not going to find America supporting it. Uh, so I think the United States is, is, has always been ready and willing to, to stand behind those, to help those who help themselves. Australia has been in the forefront of countries that do uh, help themselves. And, and coming to some of those issues that we're now, have been and are now, even as we speak, confronting at a, at a more urgent level every day, Chinese extension of soft power, you might call it, in all sorts of ways is extraordinary. And we're now understanding how extensive it is. And you're in the university sector. Yeah. You've had some strong things to say about that. Well, Chinese soft power isn't very soft. No, it's not very, <laughs> it's certainly not subtle. But, but it's also not very powerful. Uh, China has to continually buy its friends. Let's say it, it rents friends by the year. And the minute Chinese subsidies end, I think those friendships will fall apart. So universities have been beholden to China as long as they have Chinese income. It is as long as those Confucius Institutes are still generating money, as long as China is still sending students. Well, the minute that income stream disappears, I think the university's support for China will evaporate. Right. That's, and that's what China's dilemma is. That's, is, that's a bittersweet, isn't it? I mean, oh, I say, well, well, that would be a good thing. You don't want that influence. But the other deeper question would be, what the heck ever happened to the pursuit of truth and evidence and uh, reason uh, and, and yeah, even loyalty well, to the interests of the community well, we you all, serve? We all romanticize the past of universities and we all look back towards the golden ages that were. I don't know how golden the golden ages were. I mean, certainly universities were more focused on their core educational missions 30 or 40 years ago here in Australia. But 30 or 40 years ago, Australian universities were more elitist. Uh, they were careful. I'm a product of your yeah, university, and that's me. Well, I, I, you know, they they were you know less willing to uh, engage with society more broadly. I mean, so yeah. there, there were problems, yeah. and, and you know, yeah. the problems change. And mm. the problem right now uh, is this you know corporatization of the university. I mean, I was at the New South Wales uh, Legislative Council on Monday talking about this, and I was asked. Well, Salvatore, why are you criticizing Australian universities when they are a leading export industry bringing 
30 billion dollars into this state. And I said, well, if what you want from your universities is to be a leading export industry, they've performed very well. If what you want from your universities is to educate Australian students, they're doing less well. <laughs> right? So uh, be careful what you wish for. And this is really the problem that yeah. we have come to see universities as milk cows. Well, as uh, you know, leaders in export in yeah. our export product productivity, yeah. and that's probably not how we should see yeah. universities. That's a fair point. So we can't entirely blame them, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, but we can blame them. <laughs> we're all in this together. They've been all too eager yeah. to take on that mission, let, especially let me, vice chancellors. Let me hone in on something that really, really gets under my skin. Sure. Really gets under my skin. I hope it's not me. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> but you've got these Islamic study centers, you've got the Confucian centers. We now know, and, and, and you've got absolute opposition to the idea of centers for the study of Western sure. civilization. But here's the really nasty rub in the middle of it. The argument used against the Western civilization uh, sort of concept was, oh, no, 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 they'd want autonomy. They wouldn't let us run them. It's perfectly obvious that the universities have not known what was going on in some of those um, other study centres. Um, they have known, but it is a cosy affair. Academics rarely criticise other academics. It's the way to have your academic career uh, stunted at the level of associate professor. <laughs> I have been turned down three times for promotion, not because of my larger political views, but for calling people out at the university, which of course makes you a very unpopular person among colleagues. Uh, we all know about the politicization of uh, Islamic studies centers, of uh, China studies centers, but these are our colleagues. We look the other way. Uh, when a political view comes, uh, you know, try, when, it, when a group tries to have influence at a university who, you know, maybe academics don't share their political views. I mean, I was on the academic board when we were considering the Ramsey Center uh, proposal at the University of Sydney, and uh, I heard academics get up and simply proclaim that the Ramsey Center was a racist organization. And to his credit, uh, the chair of the academic board uh, quashed that and said, no, no, you know, we have to have a civil debate here and, you know, we can't have that language. But nonetheless, that language was, you know, broadly shared among many of my colleagues. So, of course, they fought this. Now, had it been, um, you know, a Palestinian studies center that opposed Israel, I think it would have been a, a no-brainer. On the other hand, if it had been an Israeli studies center that promoted the state of Israel, it would have been a non-starter, right? Uh, because we, as you know, members of the expert class, can't help bringing our own politics into our expert decision making, which is my ulti ultimately my argument why we just shouldn't let the experts but, make the decisions. But to pay you, if I can, the compliment of saying, uh, you've made it very plain in this conversation that you work overtime uh, not to ram your views and sure. to try and overly influence others with them, but rather to tease them out and get them to sure. feel free to, to think. And, 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 you know, I, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I just find it horrendous that academics who do set themselves up, if I may say so, often as a bit superior to the rest of us, well, engaged in the dreadful um, reality of, of, as you say, it's even worse in a way. Well, we know these people aren't really sort of right. in line with our philosophy and they're teaching things that are probably not in Australia's interests and they're engaging in a lot of propaganda. They're not really under our authority. And then turn around and say, no, no, we can't have the Centres for Studies for Western yeah. Civilization because 
uh, we won't have autonomy over them. Look, to be fair to my colleagues, uh, almost all of them would insist that they too uh, promote open debate in their classes. The problem is a difference in educational philosophy between what we call uh, critical thinking and independent thinking. Uh, the, the idea of the critical thinking school uh, is that, and this is a, a educational philosophy going back to the American yeah, yeah. progressives yes. 100 years ago. The, the, the philosophy of the critical thinking school is that students should be taught to use disciplinary tools to reason towards discipline-specific answers to questions. So if the uh, Islamic studies people want to use their post-colonial theory tools to get Islamic studies answers to questions, that's fine because in mainstream political science, we'll use our liberal institutional skills to reason towards liberal answers to, to policy questions and never the twain shall meet. Now, the independent thinking school of thought, which was the other branch of the progressive movement uh, in the US in the turn of the 19th to 20th century, the independent thinking school emphasized that, no, no, we want students to think for themselves whatever answers they get not to take our expert knowledge. It was very much against the authoritarian teacher. They actually used that language. The authoritarian model of education should be scrapped in favor of independent thinking. And anyone who's gone to uh, a Montessori school that's very similar in spirit to this, you know, this approach to independent thinking, uh, you get a scattershot of answers. But of course, you may not be happy with the answers you get. Now, most academics absolutely embrace critical thinking, so much so that critical thinking has been embedded in our uh, administration of the university. It's even been embedded in high schools and K through 12 schools as the way education should be done. Um, I think it does produce a kind of groupthink, the, but it produces a series of separate groupthinks that may be mutually uh, you know, conflicting, but nonetheless, you know, Islamic studies people don't have to judge mainstream political scientists who don't have to deal with sociologists, so we all do our own groupthink and leave each other alone. Fantastic. Well, all I can say is uh, I hope as many young Australians as we can possibly push for your classes uh, would be a great thing. <laughs> like, that's, uh, great. that's great of you to say, but look, I, I always try to encourage people to understand that when you want to have intellectual debates, it's not in the academy. Now, now I've been criticized for, by my colleagues for writing for Foreign Policy Magazine and for writing for other uh, venues because you know, where are the academic references? Where's the theory? Where is the peer review? It, it's not there. And I say, well, you know, if you want to engage in public policy debates, you can't say, I'm a sociologist, therefore on my authority as a sociologist, this is the correct answer. You can say it in the classroom, but in a public policy debate, you're going to have a sociologist, a human rights lawyer, a business person, you know, just a metal worker, you're going to have ordinary citizens, each of whom has a point of view, and you have to convince them. You can't tell them Karl Marx and Max Weber said something, therefore it's true. Because they'll say, who the hell are Karl Marx and Max Weber to tell me what to think? Uh, and, and that's really where the real intellectual, real intellectual debate happens, not in the universities, but in the public policy journals, on the websites, in the podcasts. This is where we have intellectual debates. Nonetheless, I return to the point, for young people to be uh, under your stewardship while they're learning, I think must be a great thing. I want to pay you a compliment. Let me pay <laughs> you the compliment. It's very kind. That's because right. I think what, it, it seems to me that you're giving them a safe space, so that, to use that expression, yeah. where they actually can explore ideas and feel able Absolutely. to challenge your thinking, their classmates' well, thinking. Conservatives so need safe spaces too. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Everyone does. Yeah. But uh, uh, as long as they're not at the absolutely loopy extremes, but, you know, we define those a little too loosely, I think, sometimes. I think so. Uh, and uh, so I can only say to you, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, very thought-provoking. Uh, and uh, I wish you very well. All the very best in, uh, in the role you have in helping shape the next generation. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation to speak. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.